the Supreme Court, nominations, and scrutiny. How contentious has it become? Ilya Shapiro of the Cato Institute and author joins us to explain. I'm Lawrence Cletty, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. It's great to be here with you. Today, we're talking about our Supreme Court. And with the recent passing of Justice Ginsburg, there's an upcoming nomination process with Judge Barrett. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of Americans are bracing for impact as memories of the Justice Kavanaugh nomination creep back in. But how does all this play into the context of our history? And has it always been such a battle to staff up the Supreme Court? But before we get to all that, we need to thank our sponsor, Cleo, who's having an online event. From October 13th to 16th, we're excited to be attending the 2020 Clio Cloud Conference. This one-of-a-kind legal tech event is taking place online and features world-class speakers like Ben Crump, Seth Godin, and Angela Duckworth. There will be interactive networking, CLE credits, and legendary social events. To learn more and to join us, go to cliocloudconference.com. And now back to our topic. And to help us out with that, we once again welcome Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute to the show. Welcome, sir. Good to be back with you, Lawrence. Pleasure to have you. We talked about your book on the last recording that you were on, but I think it's definitely more relevant to today's discussion. And so let me just briefly read off the title and I'll put a link uh, to it in our show notes. But uh, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Now, I tried to get through all of it, Ilya. I listened to it uh, via Audible and uh, double speed <laughs> so <laughs> to try to get uh, prepared for this interview. But I'm going to continue listening this weekend. It's a great book. I think it provides a nice historical analysis of how our Supreme Court developed. And that's that's what I want to tap in today. Why don't we just talk briefly about your book? What inspired the idea of writing that? And then obviously your timing is just perfect. Right. The publisher had to pay extra for that. A couple of years ago, after the Kavanaugh hearings, I, I saw that the court was clearly part of the same toxic cloud that had enveloped the rest of our public discourse. And I thought, I want to look at you know when this all started. Yeah, we know about Robert Bork and Clarence Thomas, but what about the early days? What role has politics played? And it turns out from the very beginning, the nomination confirmation process, I'm not talking now about whether the court itself or individual justices are political, but the process of getting them there has been very political in all sorts of ways. George Washington had a nominee rejected, the slavery question, all sorts of things in, in, in how it's turned out. What's different now is that you have, first of all, a very powerful court because the federal government's very powerful. And so the court's ruling on major political controversies in our country. But then the culmination of several trends where different interpretive philosophies map onto partisan preferences at a time when the parties are more ideologically sorted than they've been since at least the Civil War. So of course, we're going to have these cataclysmic battles whenever there's a vacancy in one of these precious seats. Let me ask you just a quick policy question before we get into some of the details about the nomination process. And so, you know, you all at the Cato Institute do make public comments on desired policies. So in your role there, uh, in your commentary and uh, research with the Cato Institute, what, what do you envision the proper role of the Supreme Court justice? You know, some people claim that some will legislate from the bench and some people wish that they would just administer the law as it's written. So wh where do you stand on that? Well, the role of a justice or a judge, uh, for that matter, is to interpret the law in, in the most faithful way possible, to thereby serve as 
an institution, a branch of government that checks the other branches. You know, in our separation of powers, Congress passes laws, the president signs them, and, and then it's supposed to execute and enforce them. And if there are constitutional violations, then the, the courts are supposed to step in there and, and, and stop that. And so just uh, faithfully apply the rule of law and let the political chips fall where they may. You know, in our modern times, I think most people that uh, follow Supreme Court nomination processes know that the power of the president to nominate comes from the Constitution. Of course, they work with he works with the he or she works with the Senate as it's enshrined in the Constitution, Article two, Section two, Clause two, with the advice and consent from the Senate. But uh, that that wasn't always part of the country's rubric before the Constitution. And you wrote so nicely in your book about President Washington's struggles there. So can you give us a little bit of the history of how that ended up in our Constitution? Sure. I mean, originally, when the framers were were putting together the Constitution, it was the Senate that was going to be appointing justices. And of course, the lower courts, that's up to Congress. The only the Supreme Court is in the Constitution, but all the lower courts, that's up to Congress to, to legislate, to create, to expand, to eliminate. And so eventually uh, it changed somewhere. This is kind of lost in the midst of time. But the final text just reflecting a kind of a, a James Madison compromise that the president shall nominate and bind with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint judges of the Supreme Court. So what does advice and consent mean? We don't really know. Just the simple text says that the president's duty to nominate judicial candidates and the Senate then has to decide whether to consent to such a nomination after giving whatever advice the senators want to give. And otherwise, they can reject the nominee. They can table the motion to vote. They can take no action. Uh, Merrick Garland was not the first time that the Senate has taken no action. That's happened 10 times uh, in our history. And indeed, of the 163 Supreme Court nominations, not not counting the current one, 126 were confirmed. 12 were rejected. 12 were, were withdrawn. Three were postponed indefinitely. I love that euphemism. And 10 <laughs> had no action taken. And I should add, seven of them uh, declined to serve. So back in the day, the court just was not prestigious. It met in the basement of the Senate. You had to ride circuit to, to hold court in far-flung parts of the new country and all that. But anyway, there's a lot that's happened, and there's really nothing new under the sun as far as these nomination battles are concerned. Well, this next question might be challenging, and so I know there's a lot of nuance that goes into this, but uh, just to kind of cue up the follow-up questions about the nomination process, uh, Ilya, can you just as briefly as possible give us the 50,000 foot on the nomination process? You know, how does it, how does it work? How does it function? Well, I've given you what the Constitution says, which isn't very much. How, how the modern process functions is first, the, the president uh, submits the paperwork of making the nomination official in the Senate. The Senate will then vet that candidate. They'll spend time looking at their background, writings, uh, what have you. At the same time, the FBI conducts a background investigation. Then there's a hearing. We haven't always had hearings. The first one was in 1916. And at that one, the nominee didn't even testify. So anyway, now there, of course, are hearings, typically four days, where the senators question the nominee. And then uh, one day where uh, supporters and opponents of the nominee will, will testify as well. Then there's a vote in the Judiciary Committee, and then there's a vote on the uh, floor of the Senate. Now, you mentioned that historically there have been some justices that were not confirmed uh, during the nomination process. And so I, what are some of the common reasons why that might happen? Well, historically, there have been a lot of reasons. Ethical concerns or, or personal disagreements with the nominee, for that matter. Disagreements over politics whether kind of base politics, how someone would vote or their party or judicial politics, their judicial philosophy or what their position is on a legal question. 
someone comes from the wrong part of the country. Regionalism was a big deal in the first hundred years or so. You know, all sorts of not liking the president or having a dispute with the president over some other unrelated area of policy. There are all hosts of reasons, and the senators don't necessarily have to uh, have to explain themselves. So in the nomination process, some some of the critiques modern have been that the process is getting more contentious and is getting a little longer to uh, go through. And so, you know, I had a, a pseudo recent interview with Dean Irwin Chimeritsky, and we were talking about this phenomenon and how that it, there seems to be more investment of political capital time and more investment of money. Are you seeing a similar trend when you look back at the history? Have there been other times when it's been like this or are we kind of in some new territory here? There have been times when nominees were more controversial or when the or there was more of a battle for the Supreme Court. Between Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln, for example, the late 30s through the early 1860s, eight of 21 nominees were confirmed. Uh, a lot of factions within the, the Democratic Party as it was splitting apart, the formation of the Whigs and then the Republicans, that sort of thing. At other periods, there was hardly any battles at all. I think uh, the 1880s through 1968, only one nominee was rejected. And for various reasons, there was more consultation with the Senate on the front end, or most of the nominations happened when the same party controlled the Senate and the White House. And that's a big deal, actually. Historically, when there's unified government, meaning same party control Senate and White House, it's about a 90% confirmation rate. When opposite parties control those two branches, it's less than 60%. And that is heightened even more in presidential election years like what we're facing now. You know, one of the things I really appreciated in your book was talking about the evolution of the process of the nomination process. And so one of the things that you commented on is that the justices are now engaging that a little bit differently than they used to. So can you comment on that? How, how are they engaging that process differently? Robert Bork in 1987 did it absolutely the wrong way. I mean, forget whether the Democrats were fair or unfair to him and the the the, the borking, the new verb to bork a, a nominee, but but Robert Bork himself missed the point of the exercise for him, which was to get confirmed, to get votes to be confirmed. He sort of was giving these academic, turgid responses in a way that I think turned off a lot of senators. He was there, as, as Senator Paul Simon, Democrat of Illinois put it, he was there to score debaters points rather than get votes. Since then, nominees have wised up, the White House has wised up in terms of how they coach nominees, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, who was just six years after Bork, really patterned the pincer movement of saying, I really can't speak to specifics because they might come before the court. And I also can't deal in you know, general theories because a judge should really deal with applications of the law only. And since that time, every nominee has basically tried to talk a lot without saying very much. That's their incentive to kind of appear to be nice and knowledgeable, but not really answer specific questions or say anything that might get them in hot water. It's generally understood that uh, once a Supreme Court justice gets confirmed, they serve in that position for life. But historically, some have been removed. And so what are some of the more colorful reasons you've come across having a Supreme Court justice be removed? Uh, actually, no justices have been removed. One was impeached. Samuel Chase, in the very early days, was against Thomas Jefferson didn't want the repeal of the Midnight Judges Act and, and a whole host of things, the, the Adams Federalists versus the Jefferson Democratic Republicans. 
And so he was impeached, but not removed. And that's kind of set the precedent that you can't just remove someone over political disagreements. There had to be something more. Lower court judges, federal judges have been removed, have been impeached and removed. And that is the only way to get rid of a, of a judge or I guess to entice them to do something else. So LBJ, for example, enticed Arthur Goldberg to be ambassador to the United Nations. In the lower courts, uh, Donald Trump's administration enticed a Fifth Circuit judge to become uh, ambassador to Argentina to open up a slot there. But otherwise, it's just impeachment and the standard there is some serious ethical violation or other uh, impropriety. We're in the era of the Roberts Court, and of course, that's in reference to Chief Justice Roberts. And so from what you've seen, you know, how influential is the Chief Justice in terms of perhaps an ideological leaning of the court? He is, well, the current justice is the median vote, which is chief justice is the median vote, which is unusual, meaning not necessarily the swing vote. He doesn't go all over the place or isn't a true moderate like Justice Kennedy was, perhaps. But uh, the court will only go as far and as fast as John Roberts uh, wants it to. But in general, the chief justice only gets one vote. So it's not like he gets one plus. It's not like he's necessarily a tiebreaker. What the power that he does have is to shape opinions because he gets to assign the opinions when he's in the majority, either take it himself or assign it to one of his colleagues. Different chief justices have been more skilled in that than than others. John Marshall, who was the third chief justice, basically set the tone and really grew the importance of the Supreme Court itself through the force of his opinions and his will, and even convinced uh, Jeffersonian nominees who were supposed to be there to check his capital F Federalist influences, even convinced them to come under his sway. Other chief justices were not as well respected and were not uh, intellectual leaders. Uh, Warren Burger in, in, in more recent years, in the in the late 60s uh, through the 70s, was seen as being too cagey, too political, too strategic, and you know, generally uh, not the strongest chief justice. So it's just, we've had different kinds, and he's really the, the first among equals. We mentioned Justice Kennedy, and I, and I remember uh, before Justice Kennedy retired, there was often, uh, you know, definitely on the political sides of the aisle, everyone wanted to to try to predict where uh, where Justice Kennedy would uh, would come down on a decision. But uh, the idea, this concept of the swing vote on the Supreme Court, has that been a frequent theme on the court over the years, or was that kind of a rare thing with Justice Kennedy? There's not always been a, a designated or, or the, the, the deciding vote on, on so many issues as Justice Kennedy was. Although before him, Justice O'Connor, they overlapped for a significant bit. It was, it was him and O'Connor. There were often in our history two or three that were considered to be the middle of the court, not starkly one all the time. But there have been significant shifts caused by one justice. For example, the famous switch in time that saved nine in 1937 after the court had been invalidating or striking down almost all New Deal legislation, all of a sudden another Justice Roberts, Owen Roberts, started voting the other way. Uh, And this was after FDR proposed his court packing scheme. And so some thought that the myth is that uh, Justice Roberts was bowing to that kind of pressure. It turns out that that's not true uh, at all. And Roosevelt's court packing was hugely unpopular and cost the Democrats 80 seats in the House and eight in the Senate at the following midterms. But the idea of kind of a balance of power, that's that's, of course, nothing new. That's going to be there whether whether the body is is nine justices or four hundred and thirty five congressmen. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Ilya. It was a real pleasure having you back on the air with us. My pleasure, Lawrence. Happy to come on any time. And I hope your listeners enjoy Supreme Disorder, judicial nominations in the politics of America's highest court. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. It's always terrific to be here with you as well. 
That's all the time we have for today's episode. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you.